Here we go. Rejecting the screen, the Going ISO edition, as we do every week with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA in all sorts of ways. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West. Adam Stanko, our guest today, is Corey Jez, the former coordinator of basketball analytics for the Utah Jazz. He is currently the director of sports science and analytics for Austin FC and the MLS. Corey, I want to start with golf. In high school on nine, when you chipped in for birdie to win the match against the defending state champs, did you ever think that your athletic life would get any better than that? You guys did entirely too much research, and I'm also like really frightened about what else is on, on the internet now that you've, you've been able to dig that up. Uh, but no, that was, that was probably the peak of things. My high school golf career is definitely probably the peak of anything I've ever done athletically and and any of my coworkers in in utah or now in austin would would uh, confirm that certainly are you still putting with that scotty cameron new point newport 2.0 uh i I am a scotty cameron homer but again uh, a little concerned about the amount of research that was done into a a lowly analytics guy for uh a podcast You know, it's it's funny. You 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 do research, and and Noah digs deep, and I I try to dig deep, and I I felt like I felt like I came up short because I couldn't find the video of it, but I heard that you hit a seven iron off the top of a frat house to about five feet from the pin. Um, what can you tell me about that story? Uh, I think that's one of those like can neither confirm nor deny uh, <laughs> scenarios, but. Uh, I did where I went to Virginia Tech undergrad and uh, had the privilege of living in my fraternity house for, uh, you know, a couple of years, plural, uh, uh, going to class is a little harder sometimes when you're living in a fraternity house. So the years tend to be plural, but, um, and we were, we had the best fraternity house in the country because it was on the the fourth hole of the on-campus nine hole golf course. So there's not much more that you can ask for from, uh, an undergrad housing set up i think it's awesome that's awesome can, can we go back to that moment though in high school on nine when you're, when you're chipping in the for birdie to win the match against the defending state champs and can you compare that to any sort of intensity that you have felt as a professional in a similar field but you weren't participating you know it's i mean that i mean in all honesty that probably was the peak of my athletic career <laughs> so it was about as good as it got for me and um, you know, when you do something as part of a team, right. Uh, maybe the cool thing about golf growing up is that you, you're on a team in high school and in college and things when, you know, you're not so much as a, you know, as a pro, which uh, I never had to worry about that. But, um, you know, when, when you, when you do something athletically as part of a team and then, you know, the, you know, translating that into being part of a front office or part of a, um, a technical staff, um, you know, at the pro side, um, we, we always had conversations of we try not to ride the roller coaster game to game, especially in the NBA. And it's just it ends up being impossible to do, um, you know, in, in some of the, the playoff series in Utah, um, kind of where we had our seats, uh, where I sat, at least during home games was kind of in a media section, top of the lower bowl. And it was really great just to be able to be kind of in that environment, in that feeling and to. You know, my first year we beat OKC in the first round. Um, and, you know, that level of camaraderie that you're feeling, you know, you're sitting there with your coworkers and you're going back in the locker room and, and obviously everybody is, is over the moon um, is, I think, a big part of why a lot of us like to work in sports and work for teams. You know, there's 
especially in my field, there's a lot of interesting things I think I could do in sports even, but none of them will give that uh, kind of uh, that feeling, that camaraderie that, you know, when you come together as a team and you accomplish something as big as winning a playoff series in the NBA, which I don't think I realized how big of a deal that was until I, you know, was with a team that won one. Um, you know, that that's a different feeling that you don't get in a lot of other other professions. So I think that that's probably one of the coolest things about it. Before you get the jazz job, you had created a model to accurately estimate the shots a player would take and the success of each shot. Um, and, and you were quoted as saying, I was able to run the whole lifestyle of an life cycle of an analytics project. This really helped me when it was time to interview. So how did that, that model work and how did you end up displaying it to, to NBA teams? Yeah, you know, um, a, a very common thing when uh, you go to look for technical roles like this, whether in sports or even elsewhere, um, is, you know, looking for, you know, a, a project or a piece of work that can kind of demonstrate um, competency in, in what you're doing. Um, and so, um, you know, as I was actively, uh, before I got to Utah, actively talking to teams when they would take my calls or, or read my emails, um, which a lot of them did. And I've got a lot of people around the league that I'm very, you know, indebted to for <clears throat> helping me get into the league. But, um, you know, building kind of those types of things. Um, I think the cool thing about sports and data is uh, it's relatively open. You know, it's, it's not like some financial data that is kept behind closed doors or healthcare data or, or other thing. Um, you know, there's lots of uh, really amazing publicly available, you know, NBA specifically resources, you, know, you can go get play-by-play data for the NBA on the internet on a CSV file for free right now in two seconds. Um, and the number of things you can do with that are like innumerable. Um, and so uh, to be able to put together something like that, you know, I was taking all the information I had about a shot, so the location, if it was a potential assist, how how much time was on the shot clock, who was shooting it, all these things, and you're trying to, turns out predicting like whether or not a shot's going to go in like from three is really, really hard. Uh, um, uh, especially mm-hmm. without like the, the really nuanced player tracking data. But I think for people who are trying to get, you know, specifically in analytics, but I would say this applies to anybody trying to work in sports, like doing, just do the work, like the work, like we all love sports. Like I love playing with sports data. That's why I have the jobs I, I, I do. And uh, if you're a scout who loves watching film or a, a cat person who's really interested to read, you know, CBA FAQ all day, um, put stuff together and, and when you go, when you do get the opportunity to have those conversations with, you know, a GM or a director or a head of scouting or whoever it might be at a team, you're going to, you're going to be really well prepared to speak on, you know, what you've already kind of worked on. I mean, I think that's, that, that's such a cool thing about sports. You know, we see it play out. We can see our work play out kind of on national television in front of us, you know, not uh, at some investor meeting or, or, or something else. So, um, you know, that's the biggest thing that I think, you know, if I wasn't working in sports, I'd probably still be doing that type of stuff in, in my in my spare time, so to speak. So I think that's one of the fun and cool things about, you know, work, sports and sports data specifically, um, that you can do those types of things. There's nothing stopping anybody from doing them today. So how did the interview come about with the Utah Jazz? And then what were the details of the entire process? Yeah, you know, I, I um, like I said, I talked to a lot of teams um, kind of along the way. And uh, Utah specifically, um, there was an individual by the name of Keith Goldner 
who's very, very active in the sports analytics space as well, who does some consulting work for them. And, um, I worked with him at FanDuel, um, so he's able to make an introduction to, to Justin Zanuck and the group at the Jazz when, when they had kind of a need. And, um, you know, there was a real alignment of where they needed their uh, technologies to go and platforms to go just in kind of growing those things and, and kind of um, getting them, you know, up to date with a lot of modern technologies and stuff that I had had a lot of experience with. So, you know, I, again, I get, you go into an interview setting and you've done, when you've done some of that work, you can really speak a little more uh, confidently about, hey, I, you know, I at least have some general idea of what I would be doing here because I've been doing, you know, some version of it on the side on my own. And, you know, oh, I know that coordinate data is, you know, you got to account for this, that, or the other, um, you know, just as an example. And so, um, you know, I think doing that stuff really helped prepare me for that process. But, you know, I think, you know, getting getting a job in, especially in a, you know, a closed economy like a professional sports league is, right? A lot of variables have to line up. It's not just, oh, the Utah Jazz want to hire me, great, I'm, I get to go work in the NBA, right? It's, mm-hmm. You know, I was moving, I was moving cross country from New York City to uh, to Salt Lake City, which is the <laughs> The word city is about the only thing those things have in common. Um, you know, um, the role, the obviously compensation matters for any job anybody takes. Like all these things have to line up. And so, um, you know, when they do, it's, it's, it's really, really special and a really, really good opportunity. Golf ball travels a little further, huh? Golf ball does travel a little further. We'll, uh, uh, yeah, when you go up to Park City, you're playing about 7,000 plus feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's pretty enjoyable. You get the, you get a little downwind, downhill in the mountains. There's some some good golf to be had out there, and um, you know that that month and a half of of after free agency and and after summer league before the next season starts, we we crammed as much in as we could. It really allows you to flex on the tee. That little false sense of confidence when you're, when you're <laughs> flying the ball out in out in Park uh, City and Salt Lake City area. So, what was the the interview like? Um, you know, really just, um, sitting down with, um, you know, Justin Danick, Dennis Lindsay, uh, Linda Lucchetti, who's their VP of basketball operations, who's since uh, retired, um, after 25 plus years with the, the Miller group, um, you know, really getting to know them as, uh, a group and, and what their values were and what they were after. You know, we, we had kind of done the work and checked the boxes, um, both because I, I just knew Keith, um, and so we kind of knew the technical capabilities were there. Um, you know, I wasn't a total stranger in that sense, but, um, you know, I think, especially with analytics jobs, right. So much of the focus ends up being on like how good your code, how good your model, how scientific are you, how mathematically inclined are you? Uh, and all those things are really important. And, you know, you get, you have a, a certain bar you have to reach, but you know, when I, when I sat down with Dennis and Justin for the first time, it wasn't tell me about your model. It wasn't tell me about, you know, what kind of software languages, you know, it was, um, you know, what kind of a person are you, you know, wh- what drives you, uh, what's going to, what's going to make you want to come to work every day when, you know, we're working on Christmas day. Why do you want to be a part of the NBA? Um, and, and similarly, you know, those values that they hold really important talk, you know, hearing them talk about what they call jazz DNA, um, and a lot of these things. So, um, you know, really, uh, and I think that, that, you know, you see that obviously with the players and the coaches that they have on the roster that are a little more evident, but that, that type of stuff really does permeate throughout the whole organization. Um, you know, it gave me a lot of confidence to, 
um, kind of make that leap of faith and, and, and be able to join them. Adam, rockauto.com is a family business. They've served auto parts customers online for 20 years. And if you go to rockauto.com right now, that's where you can shop most efficiently for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. So even the, the analytics guys like Corey would tell you that efficiency is significant in your day-to-day life. And this is how you do it when looking for auto and body parts for any single car, truck you could possibly imagine. And also those prices are reliably low for the professionals, the do-it-yourselfers, and the try-it-yourselfers like us. So go to the site, rockauto.com, right? Locked on in the how did you hear about us box so that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Rockauto.com. When you need fantasy basketball advice, it's important that you have a reliable source. More people trust Josh Lloyd, who will be the subject of the Going ISO edition coming up on the Rejecting the Screen feed. Josh Lloyd, host of Locked On Fantasy Basketball. More people trust him than any other fantasy basketball podcast. So subscribe to the number one fantasy basketball podcast, Locked On Fantasy Basketball, wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So to that end, um, the organization just just being different in, in that regard. 2017 NBA draft workouts. Donovan Mitchell comes to Utah to work out. Give us the story of what happened next. Yeah. So I actually joined a, a little bit after, but uh, Locke has maybe told this, but if not, I, I can, uh, I can reshare it because Locke shared it. But, um, uh, you know, Donovan, Donovan obviously had a great workout. I think it was one of his first workouts was in Salt Lake City. Um, uh, you know, Walt Perrin, who's now with the Knicks as, as an assistant GM, um, and Andrew Mealy, who runs uh, the draft process now, at least as far as I, I know at this point. But, um, you know, they always did a great job. They put on really sharp draft workouts, um, you know, military precision in terms of just getting guys in and around the gym and the drills and, and all the physical testing, all these things that go along with the draft workout. Um, but obviously Donovan um, did very well and, and put himself very squarely on the list. But um, I, I think what was communicated to everybody that was in the gym that day is uh, we're not talking about this workout. Um uh, so to speak, uh, just because Donovan had done so well and I think exceeded a lot of expectations um, coming in. I, I can't remember who he worked out against, but um, that uh, it, it was very clear that uh, we weren't going to be talking about that one on the radio or on, or on TV and things like that. So uh, and, and then obviously, luckily, the, the opportunity to trade with Denver came and, um, and they were able to kind of execute on that uh, what they saw in that draft workout earlier in the summer. So, so what was your first draft room experience like? You know, um, I, you know, the draft room itself is obviously a, a really interesting place to be, but I think maybe even more interesting is, is that that month to two month lead up to the draft room where, where all the work is getting done. And I'd say, um, you know, what, what I think Dennis and Justin do so well in Utah is um, a really integrated approach to that whole process. You know, it's, I, I can't speak for other NBA teams. I'd imagine it's, it's somewhat similar, but you know it, it, what it's not is that old money ball scene of of scouts a scout sitting on one side of the table and a, a statistician on another and a GM in the middle and you know you versus me type of a thing. You know it's a, it's a really integrated process where um, you know all, everybody brings their own perspectives and their own 
um, expertise to the table and and you're really just working through as a group to try to figure out you know what's the best decision um, at the end of at the end of the day and so you know those sessions where um, you know you might have 10 12 plus people um, together uh, looking at individual players um, and also kind of the the larger macroeconomic pieces about it right you know is the draft strong is the draft weak are we trading up are we trading back are we trading out um you know which are sometimes even conversations that are agnostic of the players and you have to consider the players and it gets very complex obviously so i think it, it, it was really a compliment to them um and it helped make us all better you know well-rounded people i was a better analytics professional because i got to sit and see how the scouts were thinking about him. I get to sit and see how the coaches and the general manager are thinking about a player and I'm not just limited to, you know, my draft model or my, my shot charts and things. So, um, you know, that, that experience, obviously the, the, the draft room itself on draft night is, is incredibly surreal. Um, you know, and we, we've got, you know, the stuff that my group would produce that we would kind of have as, as support pieces of information and, um, you know, uh, the, the executives are on the phone, you know, kind of constantly and trying to update the group at the same time. So it's, it's a very surreal type of a night. Um, I would say what was, was probably the most hectic was uh, last year. Um, so a year ago now, um, especially a year and a half because of uh, the timing of things. But uh, we ended up buying, uh, I think it was three second round picks in the 50s that turned into uh, Mia Yoni, Jarrell Brantley, and Justin Ray Foreman. And that was way, way more hectic than a first round pick of you know the year prior when we drafted Grayson Allen at uh, I believe it was 21 or 23, uh, you know even though even though they're picks in the 50s it it, it was crazy because you're you know teams are trying to buy I think the second round condensed time and a lot more transactions going on with the picks being sold kind of turns into a, a much crazier environment but you know so the whole process is um, you know especially in the lead up I th I think you know we had a really great group and really great setup to um, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, make the best decision possible. How deep is your list of potential draft prospects that you're analyzing? Uh, what, what's that number? And then, and then part two is what kind of information are you gleaning from a statistical standpoint and analytical standpoint on these prospects um, that maybe the public isn't, isn't really aware of? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's kind of the cool part about, you know, when you do this stuff analytically, um, you, you really don't have a, a, I mean, we would, you know, we'd have a draft model, right? And it's going to produce um, an output that says how good we think the player is going to be in the NBA uh, in a couple, couple of different, you know, versions, a um, couple of different definitions of good in that case. But uh, we'd run it across, you know, during the season and, and up until we know who's coming out for the draft we'd run that across all 4,000 plus guys in the NCAA, you know, because you're doing these things programmatically and analytically, uh, you aren't limited to, well, where do these hundred guys from a big board or something rate in the model, right? It's, you have this information, hopefully on everybody plus Europeans um, or internationals. And uh, uh, so you can kind of quantitatively put everybody um, in order, so to speak. Um, so that, you know, the, Draft models are, are relatively ubiquitous, I'd say. Um, there, there's some really good ones in the public sphere even. Um, I'd say the difference is, uh, one of the big differences is the inputs that go into them, um, that the public is just not going to have available. So play-by-play um, -play or event-level data is, is really tough to get in the public sphere. So that's knowing who's on the court um, every time there's, you know, a shot taken or a rebound and things like that. So, you know, knowing 
things like, um, you know, uh, if, if a shot was assisted or not, or potentially assisted or not, you know, so which is basically telling you guys who can create their own shots. Uh, we can have that as inputs to our model. Um, you know, knowing, you know, in the box score level, you know, it was two pointers and three pointers. Well, we know rim, we know the exact location of every shot. So we can build, you know, a guards who can get to the rim, guards who, you know, are, are stuck in that floater range, guards who have that elbow game, uh, those types of things. Um, you know, it's very different being Damian Lillard uh, pulling up from 40 feet out, creating your own shot, and uh, somebody standing in the corner and just banging the corner three. Um, that that has to be kind of created for them, right? There's anybody who watches basketball knows inherently different value placed on those things. So we can we can do a little more uh, to try to quantify um, those things. Um, and then I'd say the other thing that's probably not really really available, right, is all the anthropometric stuff that um, you get you get out of the combine. I guess I guess the NBA does publish a good amount of that online, but then we can bring guys in house. Um, and do a lot of our own uh, physical testing and things that, that can, again, get quantitatively baked into um, into something like a model. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a couple of things, right? And you can produce outputs of just what do I think the guy's overall quality is going to be? So is he going to be an all-star? Is he going to be a starter? Is he going to be a, a bench player? Is he going to be out of the league? Uh, but you can also produce outputs, you know, with all those kind of inputs that we have, you can produce outputs specific to things that you care about. So, you know, do we think he has the capability to be uh, an off-the-dribble three-point shooter? Do we think he has the capability to get to the basket? Um, how does that translate from college to the pros? So, you know, there's there's kind of overall draft modeling, and then there's also much more specific stuff about, you know, individual gameplay and things that are going to matter um, to, to specific teams that um, just with a richer data set that we can quantitatively um, try to answer more questions that way. So that in that you're referring to, you guys have this North Star trick of, hey, is this how's this player going to help us win a championship? And then individually, it's the it's those smaller objectives that you actually get there based upon team needs. I, I'm curious, you you just mentioned 4000 players are in that you just you know run run your model through. Uh, do you guys have a specific big board that literally will list the one through 4,027 <laughs> or, or is it, or is it more of a tiered system? How, how would it look if, if I were to see it? Yeah. Um, I think that's why I'll, uh, although the baseball draft has shrunk, while I would never work in baseball when they had 50 plus rounds. And I think <laughs> uh, they were, you know, they're, they're from talking to people in baseball, they're literally forced to, to kind of draw it out, you know, one through however many people that is, right? <laughs> um, you know, 1,500 or so that get drafted or, or something like that. So, but, um, you know, it, it's, I, I, I think it takes, you know, a couple of forms. I think at the end of the day, right, it's in, it's in Dennis and Justin's brain is what it, it really probably matters most at the end of the day. Um, you know, I, what we'll kind of do to help, um, help them kind of form, formulate those things themselves is, Kind of produce a ranking list based on statistical features. You know, scouts will produce a ranking list based on each individual scout's, um, you know, preferences for kind of overall players and how they would rank them. Um, and then we can combine all of those and get an aggregate. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think organizationally, um, you know, uh, different teams might do it differently, but, you know, the president and the GM are, are going to um, kind of have that, um, 
you know, in a little bit of a, a, a way is not to bias the group. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, group think and, and cognitive bias. And, um, you know, you don't want to, if you have a head coach walk in or a GM walk in, you know, three months before the draft, and I love players one, two, and three, well, it's going to be a little harder to get, you know, some truths out of your group. So I think, I think Dennis was very good at kind of playing that close to the vest um, and um, allowing us to kind of really think and explore the, you know, the, the players freely um, so that we could get kind of the most honest um, answers uh, at the end of the day. So then what role does the head coach, and in your case, Quinn Snyder, what role does he play in draft selection to make sure that everybody really is on the same page? Yeah. You know, I think in it's, I mean, COVID year is weird, right? With, with timing and the bubble and, and all of these different things and, and the way they played out. But um, in, I, I would say in maybe a, no, a more normal year, um, you know, again, you know, just like I said, our front office group was really well integrated. I think uh, that extended to the coaches, certainly, you know, in a normal year, we're, we're hopefully um, not integrating them till deep into the playoffs. Um, they've, they've got bigger things to worry about when uh, you're in the first or second round or uh, for them, hopefully further into the playoffs in a normal year. Um, but, you know, that input's really, really important. And, and so um, the coaches and um, not, not just Quinn, but, but a lot of members on the coaching staff, I think, um, you know, they do their own individual homework on the guys. Um, you know, they, they're obviously not spending as much time as a full-time scout throughout the season watching college, but I, a lot of them still watch a ton of it. And, um, um, and then also just like individual conversations that, that are kind of, um, you know, that just kind of naturally happen because everybody, again, is really has a really good relationship with everybody else. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I, again, I can't, I would imagine, I would like to think that most NBA teams are, uh, you know, make an effort to integrate in, in that sense. But um, I felt like we did a really good job of, hey, like you guys, like if this is a center, hey, you know, Alex Jensen or Vince Lagarza, like you're the ones who are going to be coaching them. Um, you know, what do you see here? What do you see there? Um, you know, the, the things like footwork and uh, kind of what's going through a player's head during a play that I, I certainly don't have, you know, the level of, um, you know, industry expertise on like, like a, you know, a position coach does. So, um, you know, is a, a really, you know, integrated process and um, even getting them to kind of produce their own rankings and things. And so that um, we could really understand where everybody stood uh, going into draft night. Championship week in the NFL. Only one place that has you covered, one place we trust to put down those wagers, betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use that promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D, on LOCKEDON, for your 50% welcome bonus. So get in on that action. Don't forget to use that promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D, on to receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. If you want to get basketball smart, aside from listening to Corey Jez, you can start by listening to Hollinger and Duncan, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. NBA analytics pioneer, front office insider John Hollinger joins Dunked On Podcast host Nate Duncan to bring you scouting reports, game breakdowns, salary cap analysis. So subscribe to Hollinger and Duncan today, wherever you get your podcasts. You can quantify effective field goal percentage or rebounding rate, but when analyzing draft prospects, how is character weighed in, in personnel decision-making? Um, 
I mean, going back to, to what I was saying about the first time I ever got to meet with them, it's, it's, it's very clear uh, when you talk to those, um, the people in charge in Utah, and now you see the things Ryan Smith is doing, that um, character is very important to the group. Um, and I think, I think it's weighted appropriately. I think it should be very important to the group. Um, and um, it, it's hard, right? It's hard to say, how do you programmatically, how do you analytically weight something like that? Um, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, like, rebounding is, is this much indicative of future success in the NBA and shooting is this much indicative of future success in the NBA. But uh, it's, a, it's a little bit harder to say character is this much indicative um, of future success in the NBA. And, and so, you know, you do your homework, you, you talk to people that you trust and um, you talk to people around the league. And again, Walt Perrin, Andrew Mealy, the guys who Walt's now with the Knicks, but Andrew is still there. who are in charge of that draft process. Um, you know, they pound the pavement, so to speak, you know, they're talking to coaches. They know, it seems like they know every D1 coach in the country and like every D1, you know, grad assistant. I'm always shocked at how many people those guys know, but um <laughs> You know, it's it's amazing. Like you, if 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 either of you guys have ever, you, you can't walk into a gym anywhere in America with Walt Perrin and like not be like you can't get to a seat without shaking some people's hands. It's, <laughs> it's the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, but yeah, it's it's those guys, you know, um, getting that information. Obviously, this year was weird when with interviews it's, it's done via Zoom, uh, but at the same time it allowed us to maybe do more than than we normally would if. Uh, we had to fly guys in for them. So um, it, it's a really, um, it's a really important part of the process. And um, at the end of the day, how you weight it is going to be uh, way more art than it is science. All right. So let's go on the court. Give me a decision that you spearheaded that you were able to communicate effectively that led to the most on court success. Um. I think a, a, maybe not the most on-court success, but um, a really interesting one that came up over the last year was the introduction of the uh, coaches challenge um, and the introduction, you know, 2019, uh, 1920s season um, coaches were allowed to start using this. Um, and, you know, there was a lot we could actually do, believe it or not, to quantitate, you know, within the framework of the rules so that the league is laid out, hey, you can only challenge these types of scenarios. So, you know, a whistle has to be blown or, or you, um, you know, uh, if it's a loose ball, it goes to a, goes to a jump at the middle of the floor. And, um, you know, we generally know uh, possession values for a lot of things. So we know uh, a free throw from Steph Curry is basically worth one point, right? But a free throw from somebody else might be only worth six tenths of a point or seven tenths of a point. Um, and so, um, why could, why is that Corey? <laughs> Cause some guys are, aren't as good as Steph Curry shooting free throws. <laughs> um, but at the same point, you, you know, uh, an expected value of a jump ball at half court, maybe a better example of, okay, well, we're going to win the jump ball, you know, with Rudy, probably 55 ish percent of the time, um, you know, a little bit more than average. Um, and then we know the average value of a half court possession. So, um, we can basically build all of that stuff in and to say, um, here are situations where we uh, would kind of advise challenging. Now, all that goes to say the coach has to think the, the call on the floor is wrong. Um, and it's hard, to, uh, uh, it's hard to advise challenging when you don't. But, you know, as an example, there's, there's very little incremental value. Let's say, uh, 
guys bringing the ball up court and um, one of our guards, you know, fouls him non-shooting on the floor. Um, even if we're right, like even if it's 100%, you know, the, the player starts screaming, twirling his finger, and coach, I didn't, I didn't touch him, I didn't touch him, I got a ball, whatever it is. Um, even if you get that right, uh, if the opposing guard still possesses the ball, uh, you're going to extract literally zero value um, or, or very little out mm-hmm. of succeeding in that challenge because uh, the team on offense is going to maintain the ball uh, because it's, it just becomes uh, uh, a bad whistle and they get side out and they still have the same amount of time left on the shot clock. So like how much time left on the shot clock really uh, drives possession value? Cause if there's six seconds left, it's a really decayed possession. Whereas if there's 16 seconds left, it's a pretty average possession. So um, things like that would inform kind of these strategies. So we were able to kind of look at all those things that go into, um, you know, the value of possession in a different game state and basically create heuristics to, um, just help the coaching staff decide uh, when they should or should not challenge. So um, I think it's v- it's very clear uh, who thinks that way if you watch games. If you see coaches who challenge early in the game, they're almost always thinking in the in a kind of a, a card counting sense. You know, hey, it was a foul on a shot. It's a good free throw shooter. I have a, even though it's the first quarter, I have a chance to take two points off the board. Like, take away the the, the scenario of a. Let me put that in a different uh, context. If you're a gambler and I give you two points every game, you're like a millionaire immediately, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you win. <laughs> you're going to win way more than 55% of the time, which you need to to break even. So even though it might be in the first quarter, if, you know, a scenario like that where a good free throw shooter is fouled in the act of shooting um, and you think it's overturnable, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's a scenario that, you know, the match really says, hey, this needs to be it a challenge. Um, so you, you, you'll, you've seen coaches, I think as the you know, year and a half that that rule has been in place that are not afraid to use that in the first quarter. Um, and I think we did it in a preseason game. Um, Jeff Green fouled Zion in like our first preseason game. Uh, it was like in the second or third quarter and, and Quinn used the challenge and I was jumping up and down. Uh, <laughs> Cause it was, it was like, a, you know, it was a, a green light challenge scenario. And, and so um yeah, it's, you know, it's, that, that's a very specific situation, right? A coach's challenge, but um, a way that you can kind of add a, a framework to it to kind of help the decision-making in what is otherwise a very uncertain scenario. So, so what's the technology that from up in the stands that you use to buzz the coach to make sure that they do challenge? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty sure if we had buzzers, uh, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be more of the Houston Astros than, the, than, than an NBA <laughs> team, right? But um, no. Uh, you know, we, we just created heuristics that, that, you know, they had an assistant coach who'd be in charge of it. And um, we, we reviewed that pretty, uh, pretty extensively. So uh, I would be up in the stands yelling challenge. Uh, I don't think they could hear me. Um, <laughs> I, I sat pretty far away from the bench, but uh, when I saw one that, that I liked. Um, so yeah, it was always, it was always fun when, when you'd see the, the timeout, the, the finger twirl and um, a little bit of chance to, to kind of see your, your stuff in action. So. Forget a buzzer. They should use the uh, in-house arena music, and and that's how they can signal down to coaches. Just an idea for some teams out there. You know what I mean? Little little thought there. Just I, I do think everybody. I do think there's been a little bit of um, uh, deciding when to show replays in the jumbotron. Honestly, mm. uh, across mm. across the whole league, if you're the visiting team, you're likely and like you're the one committing the foul, so you're deciding whether or not you should challenge it. 
I think if there's a, if you have a savvy game ops group, they're not showing that. It's uh, all about hiding in plain sight. Um, Corey, thinking in terms of chess for roster construction, I'm curious as to how far in advance teams look at what their roster is going to be. How many years out? Yeah, I think even if you look at some of the the publicly available, um, you know, salary books, you know, that are out there, um, cleaning the glass keeps a good one. I mean, there's a couple guys on Twitter that keep them on on a Patreon or something like that, which are are things that I I, I think every basketball fan should spend more time looking at. It, it really allows you to kind of get inside the brain of of a front office when they're making a decision. But um, you know, you're looking at it at least as far out as those contracts go, right? If not further. So. Um, you know, I think every decision um, is made with a, on a multi-year basis um, and the way NBA contracts are structured, right? That's three to five years, generally speaking. So, um, you know, and I think every team employs someone now who's, who that's basically their, their sole job, whether they're a lawyer or, um, or, or someone who's a kind of a capologist. Um, Steven Schwartz, who does that for the Jazz, is, is – uh, is a whiz with the stuff. Um, the, the Microsoft Excel sheets that <laughs> that underlie some of these things would, would hurt your brain if you look at them for too long. But um, yeah, I mean, I think every team uh, that, that's doing it intelligently is, is um, you know, even if it's a one or a two year or one plus one type of a deal, um, it's going to have roster ramifications uh, in years beyond the deal. So you, you always have to be thinking about those things. How do you handle in an, in an analytics department and this this also has to do with the with the media side, since there are folks in capologists in the media. How do you handle the the misconceptions and the misperceptions of scouts versus the analytics department? Since it seems like in the public's eye that those two are just always at odds with each other, and scouts are simply eye testing guts, and analytics are simply numbers. Well, I think um, I think it's a uh, not not that that's your view, but but people who think like it's a really reductive view of both uh, perspectives. Um, any anybody who knows an NBA scout or is friends or has ever talked to an NBA scout uh, or has had a chance to see like what a scouting report looks like, it is way more than eye test and gut feel, right? It's I mean there there are if these things are done well, there are frameworks, there are different things we're looking at and kind of, you know, creating grades against the analogy in baseball, right? Five tools, 2080. Um, you know, we have a lot more than five tools in the NBA, but, um, you know, baseball's kind of a little more simplified, but it's, you know, you have your five tools and you have your grading scale among each and scouts can put them in and you can add them up over time. And, and you have a framework for how you're evaluating the players, even though you're evaluating them with your eyes, um, and not a, not a model or a, a spreadsheet. Um, you're, you're doing so in a quantifiable, scalable framework. Um, and I think, um, you know, any uh, scouting department worth its salt is probably doing that in some form or fashion. Um, and so that right there is, is, you know, you quickly learn when you start talking to these folks every day. Um, you know, I didn't know any NBA scouts personally before I started working for a team um, that they, they, they know what they're looking at. And a lot of times it's going to be, you know, these things are going to be very complementary and contextual. It's very rare that, you know, a model or a metric or something would just say, oh, the, you know, this player is an absolute stud 
and he's top 10 player in the league and whatever. And a scout would come in and just be like, no, he's absolute garbage. I would never want him on my team. Right. Like they're not at odds in that sense. Um, I think where, um, you know, and honestly, the, 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 the place where it should be viewed as almost exciting and a really big chance for opportunity is if you're scout, if your scouting department and, you know, uh, a statistical evaluation don't line up, uh, you know, LeBron, shockingly grades out pretty well in both of those, right? Steph Curry grades out pretty well in both of those, Giannis and blah, 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 right? But when you get into, um, you know, kind of the, the, the middle of the roster players and you have some that maybe they don't line up uh, as perfectly as one-to-one, um, it's a really interesting opportunity for, in theory, some, you know, light arbitrage, if you will. Um, and so, um, those should be treated as exciting scenarios that you really should dig your teeth into, um, as opposed to, you know, a bad situation because my scouts and my analysis, um, don't line up. And so, but I, I think in terms of, you know, how the departments jive and things like that, it's, um, you know, it all comes back to relationships, right? Uh, I mean, any working department in any company does, and it's going to depend on, on interpersonal relationships and, um, you know, we did our best to make sure the scouts understood what was in our models and, and why why a model says uh, it may or may not like a player, why a metric might say it does or does not like a player. Um, you know, a guy could have a bad defensive on-off, but if he's playing with four other guys who are, you know, just not up to par, well, maybe we need to evaluate the, the metric in that context, right? Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's more of, of, hey, this is where I'm coming from. This is what I think. You know, this model says the guy's good. This is what it means, um, as opposed to just, I like player X, you don't, so let's fight about it. Do you have an example as to when there might have been some disagreement among among your front office? Hard to think of a, of a specific player, but I think a lot of times when there's um, when there's maybe disagreement or, you know, I think – and something that honestly, I mean, player tracking data is allowing us to start doing this. Um, I don't think, I think teams in the NBA by and large still don't leverage player tracking data to the degree that they could or should. Um, there's a lot that, that could still be asked with this, but um, you know, I think w- when those, uh, when those two schools of thought tend to butt heads is, is when you get into very specific types of actions. So um, a player may rate is really mm-hmm. good as a, you know, uh, as an overall player, but if he's not a, if he's a center who doesn't play pick and roll, like he's probably not going to work in Utah system that well. Right. Mm. Um, or, you know, you play that out to any different number of teams and, and their kind of game styles, right? Like if you're, if you're a guard who doesn't shoot particularly well, you're not going to pair well with, you know, two or three other players that um, aren't, shoot, you know, that, that type of a thing. So um Whereas you, you might be a guard that doesn't shoot well, say a, a D'Anthony Melton, for example, who uh, still does a lot of good things on the court, but because, you know, he may uh, have a gap in his game, that may be very relevant to kind of our game model and the way we need, what we're going to need out of a rotational guard in that scenario. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's much more um, not just that the things disagree, but then you go a level deeper into the context of, Okay, well, yeah, overall, this guy's good statistically. Um, but what about these three or four specific things that he's going to be asked to do when he's on the floor? And um, can we look at, look at players that um, maybe check those boxes, even though they might have lower or higher overall impacts 
you know, one of the things I, I picked up, obviously, everybody that picked up that read Moneyball was this idea at the time of on-base percentage and how that was, you know, uh, a stat was essentially taking advantage of market inefficiencies and all. And I think about that in the context of when I think about shooting and shooting percentages and how they can be evaluated. And, I, and I'm curious, like Zaire Williams, for instance, who's at Stanford, right, star freshman, almost fits exactly what I'm thinking about as you describe this stuff. His shooting numbers are really low. But when you watch him shoot as a scout, you're like, oh, man, his form is unbelievable. He can create his own shot. How do you then – what do those discussions then look like for a prospect like Zaire Williams when the scout comes back and goes, I think he can really shoot? And you guys are saying, yeah, but these shooting really depress me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, gosh, there's, there's probably guys in the NBA who, who check that box as well. Um, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, from an analytical standpoint, um, we, we care more about than just the surface level, you know, three-point percentage that you would get on the box score, right? Uh, we care about, um, you know, hey, if a guy, if every three he takes is off the dribble and he's shooting 33, 34, 35%, that's really, really good. Like, that's really good. You know, and now if everything he's shooting is catch and shoot, stands still in the corner and he's shooting 33%, mm-hmm. very different, right? Very, very different. That, that's like un, unplayable, causes spacing issues versus, um, you know, 35, 36, 37 is like Damian Lillard territory if it's off the dribble. So, um, so at, right, as, right as a first pass, like that type of context is going to matter a lot. And again, that's college information at the college level, right? That's going to be very hard to get kind of in this public um, to, to a, a fan of Stanford or a fan of a, a college team. So um, teams pay a lot of money for that data, honestly. So, um, so things like that, that, you know, we will dig into and say, okay, yeah, he, you know, overall numbers here, but um, given everything we can know about all the three pointers he's taken. So, you know, are they NBA threes? Are they right on the college line? Are they in the corner? Are they above the break? Do they come out of a set? All these things. Um, you know, we can kind of update our, our, our guesstimate as to how we think, in, the, in this case, a college player would project to the NBA. So it's about much more than, oh, he's, he's a 31% three-point shooter, so he's not going to be a good three-point shooter in the NBA. Like we, you know, that, that would be, again, very reductionist to kind of think about it that way. So you, you want to kind of that might be your baseline you're starting, um, but you want to kind of update that, um, you know, range of outcomes based on everything you know. And I think the bigger thing there, right, and, and something I harp on a lot is every player, you know, if you're talking about college three-point shooting, the pro three-point shooting, it's not one-to-one. It's a range of outcomes. We, we, we can all think of players who came, out, who came out of college and we're like, that guy's not going to be a good shooter. And all of a sudden he's a great shooter, right, and vice versa. Um, so... Um, you know, you want to, you know, you kind of want to, if you have this bell curve of a distribution of a range of outcomes, again, if we're talking about a guy who's not producing in college, like there's still a one or two standard deviation scenario where he's a 31% three-point shooter in college and he's 40% in the NBA. Um, and what he shoots in the NBA is also going to be a function of the system that he's in and does, like, does he play with Chris Paul, <laughs> right? Like, like mm-hmm. playing with Chris Paul is probably the single best thing a player can do for his three-point percentage, right? <laughs> Um, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, a very good distributing point guard. So, um, you know, those types of things as well. So, 
um, you want to think about that really as a range of outcomes. And, and um, Sam Hinkie had a great has a great um, story he tells about um, he asked the scouts if a player is going to pan out or not. Say it's a college player, um, but instead of yes or no, he puts five cups in front of the scout and gives the scout ten marbles. And the five cups are you know out of the league bench player, uh, high rotation starter, all star. Let's say, right? And instead of um, yes or no, this guy's a good NBA player because good NBA player can mean a lot of things. It's you distribute your 10 marbles accordingly. Hmm. Um, and, and right now all of us, what, I mean, what you've, what you've done without really using the words probability distribution or Gaussian distribution or all these things that make scouts, you know, tell me I'm a nerd is you've, you've created a probability distribution for outcomes of what the scout thinks the guy's going to become, right? Like Zion coming out, we probably all have our 10 marbles near the very top, but um, you know, uh, just D'Anthony Melton, because I've said him already, like coming out of USC just after a year off, our marble distributions might look, you know, very, very different from scout to scout, right? So um, it's a way to start thinking about um, both overall, like player skill and talent and evaluation. And also, um, you know, if you're just talking about three-point shooting, you could draw that same bell curve over what you thought this player would be as a three-point shooter in the NBA. So, um, the, I, you know, I'm a really big advocate for that kind of method of thinking um, as opposed to just yes or no, I want him, yes or no, I want him at 23 or whatever your pick is. Have you had these types of conversations with former players who, especially former players that are broadcasters, who completely dismiss the notion of quote-unquote analytics and just do not understand even the least bit what it's all about? Um, you know, we, we, we had, a um, Thurl Bailey and Ron Boone, our, our, uh, TV and, um, uh, radio guys in Utah were, were awesome. And, and we always had a, a chance to talk on the road and things like that. And, uh, certainly you watch, I, again, I'm using the word reductionist way too much. You know, you watch, uh, some of the TV broadcasters on, on TNT or ESPN, former players there. And I, I don't think it's, it's, uh, dismissive uh, i mean if somebody's being dismissive about you know anything that every nba team is doing whether it's scouting or analytics or medical or health performance like you can you can dismiss them right um so i think you know you watch some of the guys on television it's it's much more uh, just a lack of education uh john hollinger tweeted something literally the other day i think it i can't remember who the player was there's a player driving layup kind of had like a long layup looked pretty straightforward um, and made like midair last second pass to the corner for a corner three. And Hollinger tweeted basically uh, just to be clear, the analytics state takes a layup in this scenario, mm -hmm. right? Because analytics, analytics gets reduced to uh, all, you know, only take threes and, you know, the rockets from days past. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's way less about people are dismissive of uh, you can't measure the game and the game can't be played on the spreadsheet because, I think anybody who has seen it done seriously and done well knows that's not at all what analytics is. Um, and, and it's just, it's just a level of lack of understanding of, um, you know, what we're talking about. Like Chris Paul and Kevin Durant are more than welcome to take mid rangers because guess what? They're worth about 1.1 to 1.2 points every time down the floor. And that's better than the average half court set in the NBA. So at, which is about one Oh five. So, um, you know, 
analytics is, is a focus on efficiency and not a focus on um, dogmatic things. Um, we don't have anything against running backs or post-ups, uh, just that uh, uh, running backs and post-ups have kind of proven out over time uh, at a large scale. If you had a guy who could, who could get a bucket seven out of every 10 post-ups, every analytics person in the world would advise to post up every game um, until you had to kind of counterpunch it. So um, I, I, think it's, I think it's a lot more of, um, you know, I think the analytics community can do a better job maybe of um, branding, if you will. Uh, we, not like we have a centralized branding department out there, but <laughs> um, I guess that might just be Seth Partnow and John Hollinger at this point. But, um, you know, you know, we're trying to examine the game with a lot of nuance, just like a scout is. Um, and, and so it's things like that, that um, as they become better understood, I think will be kind of better accepted as well. But has the league itself ever come to you or any of your colleagues on other teams to join the team broadcast meetings that they have at the beginning of the year in order to spell all of this out and in order to cut through what, so many don't understand. You know, every team does it a little differently. Um, but, um, you know, again, with like David Locke and, um, and, and the guys in our TV crew, um, you know, a little more just because we had really good personal relationships and, and the jazz are just have good people. So it's people you want to be around and, and, and be with. So, and talk to and have interesting conversations with, um, Locke obviously loves the, the numerical side of the game too. Um, so there's a lot that we could do you know, just there, just, just by saying, Hey, like, here's, here's what I'm looking at when I, when I look for, for this and where are rebounds going or what a shot distribution look like and those types of things. Um, so I, I do think it's a really interesting point that you bring up though, of could, could we do a better job at a league level of um, helping uh, fans, um, you know, and the people who are so invested in our teams and in our communities you know, understand what we're doing. And, and, and there's a, there's a very, there's a very careful balance there, right? Cause it's, we're a closed economy and there's a lot of competitive advantages around, um, you know, the, the, how the sausage gets made, so to speak, but, um, you know, Hey, this is what we saw in the player that made it, made them, you know, a really appetizing draft pick. And, you know, some of them might be scouting, some of them might be analytics. So I think, is a fine line there, um, but it's something that I think the league, especially related to analytics, can probably do a little better um, to kind of uh, maybe educate some people who just otherwise wouldn't have the the exposure to it. Malcolm Gladwell wrote issue that emergency rooms had at one point where they were trying to figure out ways to diagnose heart attacks and basically using too much information. What they found was when they narrowed it down to key factors it made everything easier and it sounds like one of the issues for analytics departments is that they have so much data to go through so much data to mine and to try to figure out what's really important over the course of a game that helps you ultimately just to win so how do you narrow down the data when you have so much information available yeah i mean you're you're absolutely right i mean there's um at the player tracking level, there's 2.2 million data points uh, produced every game for, for one individual game. Um, and in an 82 game season, you play that out, right? It's 1,230 games. So, um, so there's, there's a lot of information, right? Um, that, that, that's out there. And especially with player tracking data now, 
uh, which is 25 times a second coordinates of the players in the ball. Um, there's a lot of ways we can analyze that and, and ask questions of it. Um, and, you know, there, there's, two, there's probably two things. Um, you know, the four factors, which are kind of the classic um, representation of, of uh, um, you know, analytics in basketball uh, from Dean Oliver, you know, there's a, there, and the four factors are effective field goal percentage, turnover percentage, offensive rebound rate, and free throw attempt rate. And it basically follows that um, every team's going to possess the ball the same number of times, except for two for ones at the end of a quarter. So um, those are the four ways you can improve your possession or uh, decay your opponent's possession. Um, and so the only way to really win games is to, is to tweak those four things. But they're, the reason I bring that up is they're in their order for a specific reason. Um, you know, effective field goal percentage explains about 60% of the team's offensive rating. Um, turnover rate explains about another 20%. Um, rebound rate uh, explains like 15. Uh, and free throw attempt rate explains about five, right? So what we can do as, um, from an analytical standpoint, you know, everything's important, right? Your pick and roll play is important. Your transition defense is important. Um, but we can kind of put weights on those things of, um, hey, you know, this uh, certain scenario might only happen once every five games. So I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on it in practice, but maybe it shouldn't be the number one focus. Uh, whereas this certain scenario is going to happen 10 times a game, right? So, so maybe we want to focus on that more in practice um, and, and those types of things. So um, I think that's what we can do as, as people who have access to all that information is do a, do a really good job or, or, or try to do a better job of um, – distilling down to to the things that are going to drive an effect on winning um and you know effective field goal percentage at, at the top level right is, is the first one and then so what are all the sub components of that how often do they happen per game and where do we think we can move the needle you know it, it'd be great if you say well I, I want my opponents to shoot uh less good from three-point land but it is you know you look at over multi-year samples across all the teams it's basically impossible to control defensive three-point percentage. Uh, but what you can control is, do they get unguarded catch-and-shoot corner threes, or do they get off-the-dribble 35-footers, mm -hmm. right? You can control that as a defense. So um, controlling controllables and, and kind of using, you know, the information of frequencies. You know, we know how often pick-and-rolls happen. We know, we know what percentage of possessions are transition, um, all, all these types of things to say, okay, well, yeah, this might feel painful in the moment, it happens, but it happens once every X games. And so we're going to live with it and move on as opposed to, you know, this, uh, another scenario might happen a lot. And so you, you probably want to focus more time and energy there. What are the best ways? And then also the ways you've tried that have proved to be ineffective of communicating what you know, what the numbers and the spreadsheets say to Quinn Snyder, and then eventually to the players. Yeah, you know, I think the, the really special thing about Quinn specifically, um, you know, anybody who's had the privilege to, to speak with him, even at a cursory level, um, it, it, it becomes immediately apparent the level of intelligence that he has. Uh, like, you'll be in a conversation with him, and next thing you know, you're on, like, the Franco-Prussian War, and you're like, I don't know how I got here. It's, it seems relevant and important, and Quinn knows all about it. So um, it, it really is astonishing. But um, and, and I think people, you know, maybe not, maybe it shouldn't be that surprising either, because I, I think on paper, uh, he's one of, if not the, the most, you know, JD MBA from Duke while being an assistant coach, which is, you know, very casual. 
Um, and he now has a PhD. He now is an assistant coach who has a PhD in complex theory on his staff as well. So the, the thirst for intelligence is there, right? Um, the thirst for information is there. So um, it, it's, it's, you know, and, and the thing that even when I came in, that Quinn was not someone who needed to be convinced to shoot more threes, although he has over the course of his tenure, he's just doubled down on it uh, more and more if you go look at the numbers. But um, so it's not somebody that you have to go and, and you're not battling with, right? There, there's an open discourse and, and there's always um, the ability to have that conversation. Um, now, there may be other constraints that you're not aware of because you're not a coach. You know, certainly I knew I was ignorant to a lot of the things that he may be dealing with from rotations or, or choosing sets or shot distribution or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, because he's got to take in information from basically every part of the organization, not the least of which is the mindset of the players. So, um, but, you know, I think the things that get, the things that we were successful in communicating, we did so, um, you know, because there was kind of a really good um, uh, dialogue around it and helping them understand why I thought it was important, uh, kind of being able to back that up, you know, with objective information, you know, analytics, what, what we're really talking about is hopefully objective information at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, it'll get applied where it can be applied um, because it's, you know, yeah, it'd be nice to have a dunk or a three-pointer on every possession, but you also have five guys trying to prevent those things, right? So, um, so you know, but but it was it, it really was a privilege to be able to work with him and, and to be able to have those conversations with him because the the you know the level of discourse was was very very high. I want to transition to just a few questions that are quick hits that don't relate to each other at all. When was the last <laughs> time that you were seriously called a nerd? And what was your response? Um, definitely, I mean, I don't think a, probably not a week doesn't go by that my wife doesn't call me that. So, so no, I mean, last week. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think, I think most of us in the profession lean into it a little bit. So I'll say, I'll say definitely in my last, within my last month, uh, uh, both at the jazz and in my new role. And, uh, um, and I lean into it. I embrace it. I love it. All right. So I'm curious about the, the Mike Conley trade that was made. You guys trade Darius Baisley, Grayson Allen, Jay Crowder, Kyle Corver, protected 2020 first round pick, which didn't get used 2020 for Conley. A, when did discussions about trading for Mike Conley start? And B, what's like, the quick summary as to why you decided to make that move. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I can answer that fully on behalf of the organization, certainly, but, sure. you know, I think from my perspective, um, we, we even look, you know, you, we looked at the, the year Mike was having um, the last year in Memphis before um, he came to us and he checked so many of the boxes and I'll give you the number that I remember standing out about it. So, there's assist to turnover ratio, right? But not, not, not the single number, but if you looked at his assist rate that year and his turnover rate that year, and you kind of plot them on a uh, quadrant uh, across each other, there was no player to the up and right of him. So nobody had ever had a, a year as good in assists and turnovers as Mike had had. Um, and I think that's what makes him uh, really special as a, as a player. Um, and I mean, I think you're seeing it this year uh, that he, uh, um, 
I think in uh, in 538's metric was like number two, maybe he's number three right now in their overall player valuation metric, because um, he's also a, like sneakily one of the best catch and shoot shooters in the NBA. Um, and so, um, you know, those things combined, it's like, yeah, I want that person. You know, those those three things in a point guard. Um, usually you don't get all three of those combined. You know, they might be great assists, but they'll be high turnover, or they might be a great passer, but they're not a great shooter. And, and Mike really is um, all three of those things. So I, I think the conversations went on for a long time. Um, and I think there's probably some media articles you can go read around the trade deadline when it when it um, obviously didn't happen until the summer of the draft. Um, but, you know, we, we had had our eyes on him um, for a long time. And it takes two to tango, right? You know, there's, there's other great point guards in the league that – sure we would have loved to have had on the roster too but they weren't as available as he was so um you know i think um he, he plays a great role on that team you know then and um especially now when he's you know he's got his footing under him different system playing with a you know played with gasol for so many years and rudy's a um equally if not more effective big as gasol but very different style so now that mike has had time to learn that i mean i think that's you're seeing expect exactly what what we expected when we made the trade just to follow on that real quick, how how do you guys figure out or figure in chemistry? And I don't just mean on-court chemistry, but, hey, if we make this trade and we get rid of player X, well, then that might upset Donovan and we don't resign him later. How, do, how does that conversation take place? I mean, probably pretty similar to what you just said. You know, it's it's it's, again, like we were talking about character earlier, and it's hard to – you can't necessarily throw that into a model – or throw that into, um, you know, a, a, a formula. And so, um, you know, it's having, you know, really good uh, pulse with your coaching staff and, and what's going on in the locker room. Because it's a, certainly for me, I, I was rarely, if ever, in the locker room, but even as a, as a GM, and, and especially the season we're having now, you know, you're not going to have that day-to-day exposure like your coaching staff will. So um, it's making sure you have a lot of clarity around that. And it's, um you know, making sure that, uh, um, you know, you kind of think you're doing what's best for the group. I, I don't think there's a, a magic, you know, uh, a level where it becomes yes, no, um, because every, every scenario, you know, related to chemistry is so different. Right. Um, and so um, the ones that might be way more clear and we never really had this in Utah, but uh, when there's really bad chemistry is really evident probably. Um and it's, it's much easier to say, okay, we need to move on. Uh, but when there's really, really good chemistry, um, I think we have a hard time putting value on that. Um, and because when things are going well, you're maybe not so critical of them as they are when they're going bad. Um, you know, in, in theory, you should be just as critical of yourself in the good times as you are in the bad times, right? Um, but um, so it's, it's harder to say um, when, when stuff's going really well, what's the loss going to be if, if you move on from a player? So I think, I think all you can do is, like you said, keep it front of mind, make sure it's a, a something that's being discussed. Um, and then, you know, whether or not it, it stops you from pulling the trigger on something, it's just going to be, again, way more art than science. Boy, were you at the, the OKC game last year when the league got shut down? I was not. Um, my, my, ironically, um, and I mean, I would not be shocked if, if, <laughs> if you could, you know, if, if somebody went and had the ability to trace it, if it wouldn't come back to the weekend prior. So that, that game was on a Wednesday, I believe. Um, uh, the Saturday prior was a, a long road trip um, that had stops in New York, Boston, Detroit. 
Um, and Boston was Saturday night, and it was Saturday night of the Sloan Conference uh, in Boston, mm-hmm. which um, for from the fellow nerds, right, is kind of the Woodstock of sports analytics. And I was there. It was great that we were in town um, uh, on the Saturday night, so I was able just to go to the game and, and be back in the locker room and, and see everybody and kind of be with the team like I sometimes was normally on the road. But, um, I mean, there's no doubt that that conference, which was happening, you know, I guess probably the 8th of March, give or take, um, had a lot of COVID going around the conference. And so um, I uh, came back came back after the conference. We had one home game. I think it was Monday against the Raptors. Uh, and then the following Wednesday was um, was OKC. So um, just as a point of context, uh, the Biogen Conference, which has been talked about a lot, not sports-related, but has been talked about a lot, uh, they tracked over 300,000 cases worldwide back to this Biogen conference in Boston, um, was the weekend prior to Sloan. And Sloan is, I mean, sells out an entire convention center in Boston. Two years ago, they had Obama speak. I mean, it's as, it's as big a conference as anything. So, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any proof or anything, but, you know, there's, there was a lot of stuff going around that conference, and uh, I just hope they can't trace it back to me, basically. Must have been, must have been frightening to go through it. And have, and have your team be in the center of it. Yeah, you know, it was that night was really shocking. We were, um, there was a group of us who weren't on the road, um, mostly front office folks who were sitting down in our theater, um, you know, our, our film room to get ready to watch a game. I think it was like a 6 or 6.30 tip. And, um, you know, there's now been uh, a few more pieces done, um, you know, following following that time about, uh how, how we reacted to it as a group, but it was just a really weird, confusing, yeah, scary time. And, um, you know, you're texting with the coaches and, uh, then Chris Paul sent them all a couple cases of wine for the locker room since they were going to be there for a while. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was, it was really weird. And, um, you know, I think, um, you know, we're just happy that, you know, nobody was seriously, uh, had any serious repercussions from it. And, and that, uh, you know, hopefully in a weird way, right? Rudy, Rudy probably saved some lives, um, you know, by, by being the first kind of uh, large-scale athlete to test positive and, you know, really bring attention on the national scale. You know, it's crazy to think about it, but it was not the topic of daily conversation, you know, in the first, second week of March, um, and we were still packing arenas full. So if you have another two, three, four days, another week of NBA games going on, uh, how many more people get infected? How many more people die? Now, I don't know, but more do, right? So in, 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 in some ways, it might be a blessing that it happened when it did. I don't think there's any question about that. Rudy put a face to it. Um, final one for me, and really appreciate the time, Corey. You guys grabbed Royce O'Neal as an undrafted free agent, um, found great value there. Uh, I know there have to be guys, and, and now you can speak about them because you're no longer with the organization. This is only Corey Jez's opinion, but who are the guys around the league that you really believe are going to be breakout stars over the next couple of years, or at least guys that aren't appreciated now who will be appreciated in just a couple more years? You know, the other one sticking with the Jazz that I think, um, and again, I obviously – like you said, I don't speak for the organization, but they've said a lot of positive things about both. Both Mia Yoni and Jawan Morgan have been really, 
really great additions, and, and they're going to get, you know, Mina is getting more minutes already this year. He was the 58th pick at Yale. Juwan was an undrafted free agent, he's in the 10. Um, head of pro scouting, Bart Taylor, just like, always had his eyes on him, and yeah, I think we were shocked we were able to get him on an Exhibit 10 and not a two-way. But, you know, those guys are, um, I think, are going to be long, you know, uh, long-term successes in the NBA, regardless of who they play for. Um, and, and they're going to be guys who who kind of play in the rotation. Um, you know, the, the other guys around the league that I that I like and, and I always come back to, I've already mentioned, I've already mentioned him once, but, you know, DeAnthony Melton is a player who um, – you know, all he does is the things that help you win games <laughs> is, is, uh, is kind of the saying I like to say, um, you know, he doesn't jump off the, the score sheet as a, as a shooter. Um, but I think everywhere he's been, he's, um, kind of won the minutes, um, that he's played. And so he's someone that, that I always really liked. Um, the team that, uh, I really liked what they did in the draft and in the off season was, was Memphis. Um, you know, I, I personally really like uh, Desmond Bain and Xavier Tillman. I think Tillman started his first game for them the other night. So, um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how those guys play out. I, I was with the with the premium that's on shooting in the league these days. I was I was shocked that Desmond Bain went all the way to I think it was 29 or 30 um, in the draft. I, I think he might have had the best body of work of shooting of anybody in the league. So, those are guys that I would be. Uh, uh, picking up in my uh, franchise fantasy leagues, if you know what I mean. De'Anthony Melton is actually on my fantasy team. No one wants to Getting, getting the DNP the other night was uh, was rough, but hey, it's, you, it's fun you, picking. Uh, yeah, you, you need to play a fantasy league that rewards like plus minus and not, uh, and not box score stats. Uh, our final question, since it's the Rejecting the Screen podcast, it's the conversation that the guys used to have in the bus – in the eighties and the nineties and, and, and even today of who you'd want to be taking the final shot. So who would you want to, and you can't say Jordan from your time <laughs> in the league. Let's throw, let's throw that in there from your time in the league. Who would you want to be rejecting the screen and taking the shot to get your team a bucket? Anybody or are you talking about anybody, from, anybody from, from, from your time when you've been, since you've been in the league, to reject the screen, get a bucket. And I can't say Jordan Clarkson because you already stopped me on that. Um, <laughs> no. Oh, oh you, you meant you meant Michael Jordan. I mean, Jordan Clarkson <laughs> might be the answer right now. Shit. Maybe I'll go with that. I thought I thought you meant I can't say Jordan Clarkson. <laughs> of course you thought I. You, of course you thought I meant Jordan Clarkson. What a nerd! It's incredible. <laughs> why, It'd be great would, if that's the would, caveat. You can't say Jordan you, Clarkson. I mean, why wouldn't he be near the top of your list right now? Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. Sure. <laughs> that is the greatest guys, answer ever. That's good. That's an absolute walking bucket. Corey, uh, we really I, do appreciate all the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and maybe we'll see you on a golf course sometime soon. I hope so. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was. And to hear from someone who's you know, lived and died it every day with an organization and introducing new life into different areas into an organization. And now doing that in, in MLS is just a, a completely different story and a completely different beast. But some of that insight was as expected, really fascinating. 
Absolutely. I mean, just the idea to think about what it must be like in some of those rooms. Think about the idea that 4,000 prospects are being analyzed and, and because you can, right? Because, because really it's coming from different data sets and you just throw all that information, um, you know, into, into this spreadsheet that that's there. It's just incredible though, to think about the amount of information that they have, what they understand. And I also think he, he brings up such a good point that there is such a disconnect general public, I think in terms of this, this concept of scouts are on one side of the room, analytics folks are on the other. When really in actuality, the more you talk to analytics people, they'll tell you a lot of it's just like he said, the PR part. It's it's not so much that they're really that far apart. It's it's really okay. Why do you feel that way? Oh, maybe I'm not looking at the right the right numbers. Yeah, and on that note, what what really stood out to me was when he said, "If a guy could score on seven out of ten post touches, then mm-hmm. the analytics would say, yeah, do it." But the guys <laughs> just can't. And despite Shaq thinking that he scored on ten out of ten or even seven out of ten, it just wasn't the case. Right. Right. It's such a good point. And by the way, we also learned today that if you are ever playing the game, who's going to take the last shot, reject this. So it's not just Michael Jordan who's discounted. You're also not allowed to select Jordan Clarkson. (laughs) I'm never going to get over that. That's so great. Uh, Frank, I saw unable to join us on today's program. Check out everything else on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked on NBA, the national program, five days a week. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, all things NBA draft from the draft guru in Chad Ford. Hollinger and Duncan, John Hollinger, Nate Duncan, if you want more of a conversation similar to the one that we had with Corey Jez, then Hollinger and Duncan is for you. Your team every single day, all 30 teams every single day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. And as we told you earlier in the week, Big Kobe project coming up next week on the one-year anniversary of the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. Stories from those that we have talked to since his passing over the past year. So you'll hear from former opponents, former coaches, former teammates on who is Kobe Bryant. So join us for that here on the Rejecting the Screen feed. Make sure you're subscribing reviewing rating sharing with all of your friends it means a lot please continue to do so we're on instagram sometimes at rejecting underscore the underscore screen adam's on twitter and a smith lives i'm at noah koslov c-o-s-l-o-v adam thanks pal you are the best